Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Project Egg Show. I'm your host, Ben Gothard, and today we have the honor of speaking with Randy Spelling. How are you doing today, Randy? I'm good. How are you today? I am doing magnificent, and not just because it's Friday today, but Fridays are awesome. All the days are awesome, but mostly because I get to chat with you. So thank you for coming on the show. really appreciate your time. Yeah, so glad to be here. I'm move this over because I can see a little bit. Okay, there we go. Perfect. So, Randy, I really want to know, and everybody else does too, what is your story? What's my story? Um, wow, where do I start? From the uh, very beginning. <laughs> from the very beginning. Born to, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some fun here. Born two and a half months premature. I have to move this over so I can see your eyes. Otherwise, I'm staring at a microphone. Um, so born two and a half months premature, Los Angeles, California, 8% chance of living or 12% chance, something like that. Um, I was literally two pounds, couldn't breathe in an incubator for two months. So I was a fighter from early on. Um, although I did not feel like a fighter at all. I was this uh, sensitive little kid who felt everything. I felt like I was walking around like an exposed nerve. Um, obviously, I didn't have the context to say that then when I was little, but that really was what it felt like. Life was just weird and fun and great and sad and confusing. Um, and I was born to a uh, very famous television producer named Aaron Spelling, who did many, many hit shows back in the, uh, basically the, the 60s to the, the late 90s. Um, so I grew up in the belly of Hollywood. Sounds so funny, in the belly of Hollywood. <laughs> in the belly of Hollywood, born a kid. <laughs> sounds way better with that voice. Too. Right. <laughs> Everything sounds better with that voice. Um, and so, yeah, for me, a lot of people ask, what was your childhood like? How, you know, what was it in one of the biggest houses in America and you had access to everything. And, you know, people want to hear all of these fantastical stories. I guess some of it was larger than life but a lot of it was just my life. I know that might sound kind of funny, but I had a mom, I had a dad and a sister, and I went through sibling things with my sister and I wanted more attention and I wanted someone to play with me and I like everything that, you know, kids really want. So a lot of it was just very um, normal every day. Some of it, not so every day. Um, when I was 12, I moved into a house deemed the mansion. So a house so big, it had its own name. That should tell you something. Right. Right. It's not a car that you name like, oh, Pearl, she's so cute. You know, she's been with me for 18 years and still going. It's a house with a name. Um, and it was big. And it was, that was the fantastical, one of the fantastical parts about my childhood was this, you know, grand big house. My friends would come over, we'd have fun playing in there and wreaking havoc. Um, then I hit the teenage years and, you know, I uh, was just trying to find my way and fit in. 
one of the things is my sister was an actress from early on. She always knew that she wanted to be an actress. I did not. I, I didn't really want to be in front of the camera. People asked me what I was going to do. I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be a producer like my father. Um, but then something changed around 16, 15, about 15. We were in Las Vegas um, <clears throat> in Caesar's Palace in the forum shops. And Beverly Hills 90210, the, the first original version, I can't believe I'm old enough to even say that, right? Um, but the original version was on in the 90s. And <clears throat> we saw, we were, we were walking through and there was just mobs of people. Security was all around and people were going crazy, mobbing my sister and you know wanting autographs from my father. And it was the first time I looked around and there were, I had a different reaction to it. I thought, I want this. Maybe I am interested in acting. And I, I didn't know at the time what I was responding to. Um, but now I know it was the connection. It was the fact that all these people would otherwise be passing by without having any idea who anybody was, right? We're just in our own world minding our business, spending money, you know, looking out for things, having one of those huge, tall, nine-foot margaritas with the straws in them. And here, everyone's stopping and going crazy, and they're getting to shake hands, and it's having an effect on people. People's day is changing. The trajectory of their experience changed because of that, and I loved it. I thought, wow, that's powerful. I'd love to have an impact on people in that way. I didn't really care about being famous, but I loved that interaction. So I remember that night I did say to my parents, we were down uh, having dinner at one of the restaurants. And I said, I was so scared to say this too. My heart was literally beating in my throat. I said, I have an announcement. I, th I think I want to act. And everyone looked at me, what, really? And I said, yeah, I think I want to act. And I got into acting classes and I was an actor for, uh, for about 10 years before um, my life took a weird turn, got pretty caught up in uh, addiction and uh, almost died a handful of times. And then my father passed away in 2006. And I just filmed a horrible reality show called Sons of Hollywood uh, on A&E. And it was the antithesis of who I was, what I wanted to portray, what I was about. I mean, it just, I would never have done a show like that if I was in my right mind, but I wasn't. And, uh, you know, listening to everyone else and you should do this. And this is sort of what you do for your career. And reality was so big at the time. And it was horrible. It was the most inauthentic I've ever, ever, ever felt. And, um, and that was the culmination, my father passing away while I was filming the show, um, you know, in the throes of addiction while filming the show. And that was it. I just said, I'm done. I need a change. I've uh, got myself clean. And then I was totally confused and scared. It's like, I, who am I? What do I, what do who do I want to be in this world? I have no idea what that is. And um, set out on a path to find that. I did a whole bunch of 
healing, therapy, psychology, metaphysical psychology, I mean, all sorts of things, um, became an avid reader and, and meditator. And, um, you know, someone suggested life coaching. And at the time, that was in a very popular field. It was, it was just emerging. And um, I read about it, it checked a bunch of boxes. And I became a, a life coach. And that was uh, 12 years ago. So let's talk about that moment of transition, because I think that is a, a crucial part of the story that I really want to dig into. When you started making those changes, and, and it seems like you, you went into this, this mode of discovery where you're reading, you're trying metaphysical and, and spiritual and all, and all these different things. What were all of those different things? Like what were the different things you tried? How did you figure out what you wanted to try? And what was that process of, of discovery and exploration? Sure. So I had been into, um, I guess, what I would deem spirituality, non-religious, incorporating all religions, just pulling everything. I just being fascinated with being connected to self and a, a, a greater power. This is when I was 17, 18, I think. Uh, one of the first books I read was Celestine Prophecy, just way, you know, sort of back then, um, sort of like a big deal for its time when it came out. Um, and of course, Deepak Chopra and, and I started meditating. So from there, if I, if I didn't have those experiences of reading all that and being connected to something deeper, I'm really convinced that I wouldn't have made it. I just, I, I wouldn't have, I would have been like, I'm, give up. I'm done. Um, but then uh, around the time when I started to get into um, all the addictions, basically, I went to therapy because that's, I, I went to rehab twice, treatment twice. And the first time, that's what you do, right? You sit in therapy, you sit in process groups. And so I just continued therapy after that. But I, I, I had the lingo, right? I could sit there and talk across from somebody, but it just felt like I got enmeshed in my problems even deeper. Like I knew them and I was, I was digging into the pain and then just swimming in pain without really figuring out how to get out of that. So I circled around in that for years, uh, had therapy for um, I don't, a handful of years at least um, but I was also fascinated with more. I mean, again, when I went to treatment, they suggested 12 steps. So I did 12 step for a matter of time. Um, and, you know, it works great for some people. For me, I, I wanted more, just something different. Um, and then I went to different healers who would uh, teach different things. Um, I just, I sort of tried everything not, not because I, how do I say this? Every little thing that I went to, even if I thought I didn't get that much from it, it held a small little piece of a 5,000 piece puzzle. And even if it was not the right thing for me, I still could fit a little piece in and go, okay, huh, that did not resonate with me at all. But that was me getting in touch with not always saying yes or having to believe something just because someone does that for a living. 
right? And someone else had an amazing experience. And then I go and I don't have the same experience. And then I beat myself up because I didn't have this grand awakening or it wasn't that special for me. That was my pattern, right? I compare myself and go, oh, well, you know, I'm at this event and people's kernels are popping and everyone's shaking and going, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not having that same experience. I learned to realize that's okay. So I just kept on going and uh, working with people. I've been really blessed to know some incredible uh, teachers and I've had some great mentors and, you know, continue to learn. So what have been some of the, the other most impactful things you've learned from, because it seems like this is a journey of self-discovery at, at the end of the day and like really understanding who you are and, and, you know, what's most important. Uh, at least that, that's that's kind of what I'm hearing is like you know one of the the common threads. Um, so what else did you what else did you learn? Did you pick up on that journey uh, up until today? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things I picked up on is doing this type of work that I do with people. That solidified everything to me because what I most judged about myself when I was little was being sensitive. I, you know, I, I would, I remember I was at the dentist one time and uh, I think, I don't know, I was, I was little, but I think I started crying or something was uncomfortable. And the hygienist was like, Oh, you know, through the mask. Oh, you're such a cry baby. Oh. And I felt so bad and shameful. Like something was wrong with me. And, you know, I was a, a very emotional kid. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that I was crazy in any way, but I just, I felt things really, really deeply. So as a, you know, I'm not big into labels, but like as a straight male, you know, growing up when I did, <laughs> before there were a thousand labels, it was like, that was weird, right? I, w- I wasn't like the, the, the toughest hard shelled kid. I had a pretty thin skin. So, um, when I started to do this work with people and I started, I have to backtrack because I realized something. I also judged myself for where I came from. I felt like I didn't fit in and always wanted to downplay where I was from or what I had, because I just wanted people to view me as normal, whatever that means. I didn't want anyone thinking different of me because I was from this either powerful or wealthy family. I just wanted to be like everyone else. Um, and so when I, when I started working with people from all socioeconomical backgrounds, different jobs, a lot of money, no money, uh, people in other countries, there is a huge common denominator and the greatest equalizer of them all is we are emotional beings and we're human beings and we all really just want the same things more than just survival mode right people who are completely in survival that's different like someone just wants water they want food that's not what i'm talking about above above that it's really, we want to be happy. We want to find our place. We want to find meaning and purpose. 
and you just want to be fulfilled. And when I realized that, and I heard this, you know, now I'm in the seat of a therapist coach, so to speak, and people are coming to me telling me um, all of their problems and what's holding them back. And we're working at this together. I'm realizing something. We're, we're so much the same that they're really these core patterns that we get into habits and patterns that hold us back from living the, the, the lives that we want. And I felt so humbled by that, that, you know, that, that work became living in me. And then I, I sort of a, a microcosm of that work is a lot of work with empathy and people being empaths. And I realized, again, I'm not big into labels. So it's not like I'm branding myself. Oh, I'm an empath. But to realize that and say, yeah, I am an empath and things can be overwhelming for me at times. No wonder why I went down that road of addiction. I didn't know how to deal with pain and past things. And, but now that I know that and I've found a commonality between empaths, the things that we struggle with the most, sort of this little niche where I've, I've drilled down really far into that. And I've, I've had this group um, called the Sensitive Path to Success where we've been working on that. So because of that, I've got to like find these patterns. And it, it's some of my favorite work in the world is finding what are the patterns that make us tick? And if they're old patterns, it's like, that's why your wheel is spinning. No wonder you're running an old pattern. So let's figure out a new pattern to run a new program. So what are, what are those commonalities with, with people who are more, I don't, I don't know the right word, like people who are more likely to be labeled empaths than not? Uh, more prone to overwhelm, being overstimulated easy, um, sort of like walking into a Costco and after, uh, you know, a, a Costco or a Walmart and after five or 10 minutes going, whoa, this is, this is a lot. Like just the, all of the data coming at you, it, it's a lot to take on. So people who are um, overwhelmed easily, more prone to anxiety. Um, what else? People who have a hard time setting boundaries. And what I mean by that specifically is standing up for themselves, expressing themselves, saying no when they really need to say no or they want to say no, but they feel bad or guilty. Um, and also setting boundaries for themselves. Like, hey, I have this boundary that I want to set that I'm not going to do this. And then they walk right over that boundary. It's a self-boundary. So... Uh, yeah, to taking on other people's energy, like being in a room and all of a sudden potentially feeling down or feeling a certain way. And they, they didn't walk in feeling like that, but now they feel like that and not having the tools to, to decipher that and knowing how to let that go. That was exactly the next question I was going to ask was, what are the tools that you need to decipher that, that you've uncovered in, in your experiences and your, your research? Oh, it's a big book of tools. It's like the Harry Potter spell book. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, are you wanting a tool? Uh, 
I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure the the right question, but I think you I think you kind of get where where I'm going with it. Yeah, I um, I mean, without digging in too much to it, just sort of a a high level is it's two things here. One is self-awareness and it's not, that's not necessarily a tool, but it's, it's a real concept of being aware of self, being aware of what's going on. Um, and I think it's so easy these days to walk around being inundated by technology and energy and busyness and time and freneticness and being aware of how you are existing, being aware of how you're feeling, being aware of what your thoughts are. You know, one of the biggest downfalls that I see from people, and I'm doing a lot of work in this area with people these days, is people's thoughts. You know, people are big into I'm thinking positive and, you know, I have mantras to say, and, you know, we hear this too in the self-help world. It's like, you know, you have to change your thoughts and you have to think positive and you have to really have a vision and, and create that vision and imagine it and see it and feel it. But the disconnect is there's a difference of doing that five minutes a day, which will help, of course. But what about all the other hours a day, minutes a day. I mean, in one hour, you, you could have 50 to 80 thoughts that negate what you really want. So for instance, you know, people have a lot of money blocks. So if someone says, I am abundant, I am abundant, and then they get a bill, or they look at their bank account, and they see a number, then what? The stronger feeling of those two is going to be the bank account and the thought that goes along with that bank account number, which is fear, it's constriction. And then what's the thought? I don't have enough. I'm broke. I, can't, I never seem to get ahead, right? I, I can't get my footing. And then the subconscious goes, okay, we're good. We love you enough. The mind's powerful enough to go. We're just going to keep creating these experiences until there's a, a strong enough emotional experience that gets created that when you have the thought that says I am abundant or, you know, money is flowing to me that you can actually connect to that and feel that. And someone might have to say that a hundred times a day and really feel it to change that pattern. So then how do you create, and, and again, I'm, I'm asking about your experiences. How do you create that experience to be powerful enough to actually connect, like connect with it subconsciously? So when you look at your checking account or you get that bill, it doesn't just immediately override that healthy thought with an unhealthy thought that doesn't really mm -hmm. serve you. Yeah, there was, um, I heard a, oh gosh, it was a, an older self-help book. Have you ever heard of uh, Joseph Murphy, Dr. Joseph Murphy? No, but I'm immediately going to look him up after this. I think it was written in the thirties or whatever. It's called Power of the Subconscious Mind. And um, 
he says something in there. I don't know, maybe it was another book by him, but it, it was from him. And he said, at the end of the day, quiet the mind and say the, ask these three questions. Where do thoughts come from? Where does money come from? Where do I come from? And when I ask those three questions, I immediately connect to some sort of deeper truth. That's going to be different for everybody, right? And I'm not here to label that or preach whatever that is, but however you have that experience of something greater, you know, I think we're all taught here the, the construct of work and money is like, I have to generate and I have to make. And the truth is you don't make money. Money's already made, it's printed, it's floating around everywhere. There's many different currencies, not just the currency of paper money. You're not making anything, you're tapping into something. And of course you have to take necessary action in your life. So I'm not saying just tap into you know, something mentally, but it's, it's connecting to the greater truth of where do I come from? Where does money come? Where do thoughts come from? And it takes you right out of your limited thinking. So I kind of want to put you on the spot a little bit. Yeah. Can you go through those three questions and, and answer them as if you were like, I'm not sure if you do that as part of your routine every day, but like, if, if you could, if we could pretend for a second, it's the end of the day or ask ourselves these questions, like what are your answers to those questions? Well, immediately this, when I think of where does that thought come from? My initial linear brain would answer the very next step. Well, that thought is coming from past experience. Okay. Where does that come from? Uh, comes from going through it and it comes from, you know, a, a thought. Okay, where does that come from? And if you just keep going back, where does it all come from, right? Where do thoughts even, like if I have a thought right now, where does that come from? To me, instantly it's, oh, there's something greater, right? Um there's a, do you remember the philosopher Descartes? Yes. Remember he, I think he, he was the one that said, I think therefore I am. I truly don't know. And I definitely should know, but that's okay. I, I, I believe you. I believe you. I'm, I'm just trying to appear smart. Really. I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, he said, I believe he said, I think therefore I am. And so for years, everyone's going, I think therefore I am. But it's, it, that's, that, that's flawed because anyone who's ever tried to meditate, the whole idea is you observe your thoughts, right? So who's, who's the one observing the thought? It's not the same. You're, it, you become the person who's realizing you're dreaming and then you awaken. So it's the consciousness. It's the same thing. So when I hear, where does that thought come from? I immediately drop into a place of consciousness, awareness, something more expanded than just a limited thought. 
The next one is uh, where does money come from? My belief is, um, again, linear wise, it's like, well, it comes from the treasury and then it comes from the family. <laughs> but really, where does currency come from? Something greater. Like, how was this all made in the first place? Right? How did someone even download the thought to have money? Something more expansive. So then I'm, I'm in a more expanded state. Where do I come from? Every time I think of life, when I think of the, what's happening in our bodies right now as you and I are sitting here speaking is nothing short of a miracle. I mean, as technologically advanced as we are, we ain't got nothing on the, the, the complexities of the body, the complexities of the brain, right? And quantum science is starting to catch up. There's a lot of brain science. There's a lot of new discoveries coming out. We're scratching the surface. So right there, when I think of that, when I think of the animal kingdom, the flower kingdom and how things bloom and the cycles and the other day I watched a tree and the wind moving the tree and I could hear it and I could see it. I'm immediately connected to something greater, something more expansive. And so for me, when I go through that process and it's really quick, all I have to do is even ask the question. Once I'm asking the question, I'm already out of the limitation that I've been sitting in because I've had the awareness to ask the question. I don't even have to go through all these thoughts all of a sudden I ask the question and I feel more expansive and that's enough to get me to go, I'm, I'm limiting myself right now. Why? You know, the other day I was telling someone on my team, we were talking about business and Q1, Q2, quarter three, quarter four. And, um, I, I watched this thought come out of my mouth and I, 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 or I heard this thought come out of my mouth. I said, yeah, uh, November and December are slow, traditionally just a slow time in business. And I literally said, Oh, hold on, stop. <laughs> and they're used to me doing this by now. I said, that's a totally limiting thought. Why is that? Are we programmed to believe that? that that doesn't have to be, I actually know people where their best months are November and December. I said, scratch that. That's not true at all. I just said BS because of something that I heard and experienced once. And then I moved past that thought. Same thing with money, same thing with love, same thing with relationships, same thing with success. Think about how often we're doing this in our lives daily, hourly. If you could really change all of that, everything changes. So at this point, what questions do you have about yourself now? Oh, I, I have so many questions. <laughs> um, a big question that I have is what am I willing to create? Because I'm very creative. Um, I, I love it. I mean, I'll, if someone says, Hey, Randy, go make a song. I'd love the challenge of going to make a song. 
right? And I'll get my daughter's little keyboard in the other room and hook it up to a laptop and try and loop some things to make a song, right? <laughs> I, 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 I thrive in that arena, but I have to be careful that, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit that I, I'm then not uh, straying my focus to something that is fun and challenging, but isn't what I'm really meant to be doing. Or, you know, I'm, I'm taking time away from something that I already said I'm going to create and bring through and actually see it through. And then just go for a shiny object because someone's going, hey, over here, <laughs> look over <laughs> here. So I think that that's a real question these days is what am I willing to create? Because I have, you know, 20 ideas a day of things I want to do. But am I willing to see it through? Am I willing to make the phone calls? Am I willing to put in the hours of work that it's going to take to do it? Am I ready to take a deep breath and move past my discomfort or fear because it stretches me. So when you're focusing on something that you're already creating, because I 100% am uh, like, I love thinking about all the different ideas and I'm like, Oh, yeah. I could do this thing. Could do that thing. Wow. So many good ideas. And so I get really excited about this too. When you have those ideas, how do you evaluate whether or not you should ignore it or pursue it or add it into what you're already doing? Or another thing that I'm not thinking about in my limited three choices of that I just gave, like how do you go about evaluating that and making sure it's what you actually want to be doing? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, three week rule, and I'll give you three steps for three weeks. Uh, number one, have a place, have a container for your ideas. Um, have a book, an e-file, um, someone you work with. I don't know anyone who can sort of capture these ideas because I think one of the hardest parts for, uh, creative individuals, it's like, it's all up here. And if you can get it all out, at least it's saved. And you know that it's safe. And you don't have to spend the mental energy seeing, holding it in your head and seeing all the ways that it, it can work. And then you revisit it each and every week for three weeks. And you have to, by the end of the three weeks, if you're as excited and if you, so, so let me just back up. The first step is have a container. So you get all of your ideas down because you might have an idea that's coming through now that might not be meant for you to birth or follow through until three years from now. Are you there? Did it freeze? Well, I'm still on. <laughs> I can just keep talking. Um,
plant needs water. All right. Ben, Ben, what happened? Still live streaming though. Hmm.